Good morning, church family. How are you today? I'm so glad that five of you are doing well. That's great. Let's try this again. You doing okay? Good, good. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here. If you're a guest, welcome to uh, just our family time. We love you. We're so glad that you're here. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to talk with you about that. If you're guests joining us online, welcome. Glad that you're with us today as well. We're going to jump into the uh, next part in the teaching series on 1 John called Love One Another. Another? Another? Yeah, this is going to be a good morning, I can tell already. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn with me to John, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and then grab a piece of paper, and I want you to write down A, B, C, and D, A, B, C, and D. We're going to talk about the A, B, C, Ds of something here in just one moment. While you're doing that, this has been an awesome week I know for many of you, you're going back to school. Teachers, you're back already. Students, most of you, if not all of you, are back in session at this point. So some of you are going, it's not a great week at all. But for most of us, we're really glad the week that we've had. And there have been some cool things that have happened. This past week, you just need to know this. Our building, our space right here is used all the time by various groups in our community and even within our church. So on Monday of this week, we had two or 300 uh, different teachers here for in-service. Then on Tuesday in our gymnasium, we had another couple hundred teachers from six different local schools, including Bethel Bible Village, Crew, and Campus Crusade here that we were able to share and give them lunch, encourage them, and bless them. And also this week, our school supplies were finished. They were handed out. We blessed six different local schools, many of which you teachers who are a part of this congregation, serve at, and are able to help bless others. My point in saying all that is this. This is a church that doesn't simply talk about what it means to love others. I'm so proud of you because you actively love other people in the church. So again, it's been a good, good week. Now, while I don't know every one of you, we're going to dive in today with a teaching that I think will speak to you. And here's why I think today's topic will speak to you. Because I know that there are two things that are true about every person in this room. Here's the first one. Every one of us, next slide, we've all had a family. Every one of us in this room has had or has a family. Now, it may not look the same as everyone else, but we all have had a family, uh, a group of people who care for us, who raised us, who were there for us perhaps. So maybe it was a parent or parents, or maybe you were raised by aunts or grandparents, or uncles, or whoever else, extended family, or like one of my dear friends who grew up um, in a group home. She, She did not have parents, but those people, she'll tell you, those other kids, they were her family. The adults who gave their time to care for them and raise them, those were her parents. So here's what I know. Every one of us has had a family, but here's the other truth I know. Are you ready? At some point or another, we all wanted a different family. It's true. Everyone in this room, at some point growing up, didn't you want a different family? So, for instance, at some point you had that friend whose parents would let them have cereal for dinner, and you're like, why can't I be a part of that family, right? Or how many of us, you had a friend who didn't have a curfew, their parents didn't care how late they stayed out, and you're like, I want to be a part of that family. Or maybe they could have unlimited screen time, but your parents like throw a piece of broccoli. Yeah, a little excitement there, all right? So your parents just throw you a piece of broccoli and a book, and you're like, really? I want another family. So show of hands, was there ever a moment, has there ever been a moment, we all can be honest here, even my kids, you can be honest, 
If you want to come home, don't be honest. If you want to come, all right, raise your hand if you ever wanted a different family growing up. Come on, let's just see some hands, okay? So here's what I want us to recognize this morning. We're going to talk about what it means to be a family. And I want you to hear something from our big brother, John. He's going to say a couple of things that are so very important, so very powerful. And here's why it's important and powerful. If we miss this, we'll miss the beauty of God's plan for your life. If we miss this, we'll miss the beauty of God's plan for us as a community. And if we miss this, we'll miss what God wants to do through us for a world that is hungry for what it doesn't even know it's missing. But he's also going to say something here that if we pay attention, I think he's going to be very honest with the fact that sometimes being a part of a family, while wonderful, is not always easy. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? And so we're going to talk about it this morning from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And John's going to say this, that we are a part of a family and love built this family. So if you will, let's stand together in honor of God's word. I had someone ask a couple weeks ago, why do we stand when we're reading scripture? Here's why. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is in our midst this morning. And when we open his word, scripture says of itself that what we read is not simply words written by man, but breathed out by God. So when we read the words on these pages, we are getting to hear from God himself through the inspired words. And so throughout human history, when someone of importance would step into a room, maybe a dignitary, a president, or a king would show up, people would stand in honor of the one who is present. So this morning, in honor of the one who is present and about to speak to us, we stand. So I want to read this out loud first, and then we'll read it a second time, and I'm going to ask you on the second time to read these words with me. Here it is. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now let's read this all together out loud. Ready? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we celebrate you today. And as those who've been invited in through adoption to be a part of your family, we celebrate That we are not orphans, but we've been given a place in your heavenly home. May we today love you by the way we love each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now I want you to see something from this passage. Are you ready? There's some key words that we're going to kind of dive into here. Notice he says, the Father. He calls us children of God. And then notice this little two-letter word, We, Father, children of God, we, here's what I want you to know. John is trying to make a claim about who we are. And he wants to be so overt that no one in here misses the point at all. In fact, if you read through 1 John, you'll notice he repeats certain words over and over and over and over and over again. For instance, the word Father, uppercase F, talking about God the Father, is used 13 different times. He calls us children 14 times he may say, dear children, beloved children. He'll call us these children of God multiple times, 14 times. And the word we is used a staggering 86 times through these five little chapters. 
Now, if you're a student and if you read through, you'll say, yeah, but Josh, it also uses the word you a whole lot. He'll say you. Yeah, yeah, but here's what you need to know about the you word. It is you plural. It is John's way of saying y'all. It's his southern you. You know what I'm talking about? He's looking to the church. He's saying y'all. Whenever you say you, he's saying y'all. But he's saying we. In other words, here's what I need you to hear. This little letter is a letter of we's, not a letter for me's. This is a letter written to a group of people because to love requires relationship. To love means there's an object of the one you love. And he's saying, love one another. We are in relationship to one another. And it's not just like a typical group. He's not just saying y'all like fans of a sports team or y'all members of a nation or y'all who live in a particular city. He's saying y'all And the specific relationship is God is your father and we are siblings because of Jesus Christ. So it is about we, it is not about me. What I need you to know is the church is a family committed to Jesus and to one another. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, if you simply allow this truth to sink deep into your soul that you, by following God through Jesus Christ, you have been born again. Have you heard that term before, church? In baptism, you are born again into a family, not just into new life, but born into a family with God as your father, Jesus as your big brother, and you have been born in with a huge family of siblings. This is what he's calling us into. And you need to know something. The New Testament, the New Testament assumes Christians are committed and a part of and connected to not just the universal church, but to a specific local church. In other words, to be a part of the family doesn't simply mean that you are a Christian and a part of God's global church. By the way, did you know right now you are a part of a global family? Everyone say, I knew that. Even if you didn't know that, now you know that. Because the fact is, Jesus Christ, he has bought people through his blood. And anyone who has been born again, whether they live in Chattanooga or Chile or somewhere else, they are a part of God's global church. But the New Testament always describes the family relationship not in vague global terms, but in concrete local terms. In fact, every New Testament letter, write this down if you need to remember it, every New Testament letter is written to a local church or to an individual in the church on how to relate to someone else in the church. Every New Testament letter. So he writes to the Romans or the Corinthians, Paul does, and he's addressing a particular church in a particular place. Or we get the letter to Timothy about how to love and lead the churches in Ephesus. Or we get the letter from, to Philemon on how he should treat a brother named Onesimus. In other words, every, every New Testament letter is about what it means to be a family. If you don't believe me, let me give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says, To the church of God in Corinth. So he's not saying the church universal, but he's directly talking to the local church body. Or what about this one? 1 Thessalonians 1 1 says, To the church of the Thessalonians. In other words, it's those who live in this city. He's talking to that local church or to the church that meets in your home. This is for, uh, Philippi, or Philemon 1 2. 
So it's not just a city, but it's those who are in your own home. He's talking specifically to a group of people who live together as family. Or what about this, Colossians 4.15. After this letter has been read to you, Paul says, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, to the Colossians, he writes a letter, but he says, send it over to this other church. Yes, we're a part of the church, but God has placed us in local, committed churches. Here's what you need to know. The scriptures know nothing of orphan Christians disconnected from a local body. Everyone in scripture assumes that you and I will be connected and committed to a local church body. Because you can't care for people you don't know. And you can't receive care from people who don't know you. We are a family committed to Jesus and committed to one another. Now, I want to say this very clearly. I know that what I've just read to you, this can be very offensive to us. To say that we should be committed to a local church, that we should have commitment to a group of people, that we should not be buffet Christians. you know what a buffet Christian is? A buffet. Have you ever been to a buffet? Everyone go, "Mm mm-hmm, all right. What is a buffet? It's a long bar with a lot of different food, and you get to pick and choose what you want and disregard what you don't. There is this growing trend of buffet Christians that say, I will take what I want from one place. I'll go to another place for something else. I will pick and choose. Instead of being a committed part of a local family, I'll just be a buffet Christian. And there's none of that in the New Testament. But this is very countercultural, isn't it? In fact, this is so opposite of what is normal to us, it just makes our skin kind of crawl, makes us uncomfortable to think about this. In fact, here's why. Modern secular culture is what we might say it avoids relationship commitments, doesn't it? Come on. Anyone in here watch how our culture deals with relationships? People avoid them. They avoid the commitments or the entanglements. This is why, statistically speaking, the average age for those who choose to get married has continued to go up, meaning they wait longer and longer to get married. And when you ask them why, stats show, surveys say, it's because I don't want to be tied down. What if I find someone better? What if things change? This is also why the average number of kids per family keeps going down. Many people will not have kids or have fewer kids. Why? Again, I don't want to have the entanglements or those responsibilities. Because after all, we want and like our freedom, don't we? Does anyone else in here like their freedom just a little bit to do what they like to do? And so in our culture, there's this, this, this fear of commitment that we avoid it. But here's the problem. It's not just the secular culture that's like this because we as a church, as people who live in the culture, it's like the water that we swim in like we are fish. We don't even realize what culture is pushing in on us. Which means that for most of us, it's not just that the culture avoids commitment in relationships. The church and Christians avoid it as well, don't we? So we'll become buffet Christians. We will not be committed to a particular family. And I think there's a couple of reasons why this happens. Before you put this next slide up, Matt, let me just say this. One of the main reasons that this happens is because while we're a part of biological families, maybe, we're raised in a family of some sort, maybe, and, and however you want to define that. Isn't it true that families are sometimes the most powerful gift, but isn't it also true that sometimes families are the most painful Because isn't it true that the people who know you the most know where to hurt you the most? 
Isn't it true that the people who have seen you at your worst can point out those moments better than anyone else? And so I think for a lot of us, the reason we avoid open, honest relationships with one another is because we want to avoid the pain that can come from an open, honest relationship with another person. And I get that. If you've ever been around people for more than like two minutes, you know that we can be real mean to each other. I mean, let, let's just do this. How many of you had siblings? Can I just see some hands? All right, hold them up, hold them up. You were looking at the evidence of meanness, correct? If you had siblings, you know this. Uh, quick show of hands, just out of curiosity. How many of you were like the only girl and you had like all boy siblings? Anyone in here? Some girls like that? What about fellas? You're the only dude and you had just a bunch of sisters? Yeah, okay, God bless y'all. We'll, we'll have intervention later and it'll be great. But isn't it true that sometimes family can hurt you the worst because they know you the best? I've shared this story before. I have three sisters. I love them all now. I didn't so much then. My youngest sister, Mary Grace, is a gift from God today, but when she was much younger, we both didn't get along very well. And I remember this one day, we were, I was outside with a buddy. We were shooting hoops. And after we'd had our Michael Jordan moments, you know, we were using a Fisher-Price hoop. But it's, anyway, we were having this great moment. We come inside. We are getting something to drink in the kitchen. We're standing there feeling really cool about ourselves. And all of a sudden, from the next room over, I hear this small little voice going, Hey, come find me, Josh. And like... I know who it is. It's my little sister. She's in the next room over in mom's laundry room. She is inside the front-facing drying machine. I don't want to mess with her. I ignore her. A moment later, hey, come find me. I don't want to find you. Leave me alone. A couple moments later, hey, jerk, get in here and find me. <laughs> to which I did this to my friends at just a moment. I walk in the next room. I kick the door shut and I turn it on. But um, but um, but um, blood curdling scream. I open it up after I'm convinced that she has fluffed out enough. I look in, and she's upside down, tears down her face, and a crooked little finger, and this little voice saying, I hate you. So I reach in to help her to get out, and she tries to bite my hand. So what do I do? She needed to go another cycle. So what is my point? Dryers are a gift from God. No, that's not my point. What's my point? Isn't it true that the people who know us the most can cause us the most pain? Isn't it true that we don't always treat each other the way God calls us to treat one another? And one of the main reasons Christians avoid commitment and deep, honest relationship with each other is because we want to avoid the pain that can come from honest, open relationships. But here's the other reason. Are you ready? Go ahead and put this up. Isn't it also true that in relationships you lose your freedom? Isn't it true that in a relationship you lose autonomy? Maybe you want to use that word instead. Listen, if you want to have complete freedom in life, if you want to never be told what to do, if you never want to be beholden to someone else's schedule or expectations, never get into a relationship with anyone else. Isn't it true, even with just a baseline friend... You start to have expectations put on you. Your freedoms diminish. So if you want to go to dinner, but you're going to go with friends, now you have to take into consideration where they want to go, don't you? You do not have complete autonomy or freedom. And listen, if you want to have complete freedom in life, don't you dare ever, 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 ever date someone, let alone get married or have children. You talk about a loss of freedom. Case in point, when I was uh, single... I come home after work, 
I'd have an hour to two hours of what I called Josh time. What is Josh time? Josh time is whatever time I want it to be. I'm just going to hang out, chill, just be by myself because I've been with people all day. But then I got married. And I come home, and I remember within the first few weeks of being married to this wonderful woman named Lindsay, I've had a long day. It was a particularly hard day. I was worn out. I was tired. I was ready for Josh time. I get home. Before I can open the door, it swings open. She's like, what do you want to do together? And I'm like, can we do it by ourselves? See, what am I trying to tell you? In a relationship, you lose freedom. And many of us, because we want our freedom, we choose not to have relationship. But you cannot have relationship and ultimate freedom. Relationship requires that you give up some of your freedom. But here's the good news. Are you ready for some good news? Everybody say yes. In relationship, you may lose your freedom and you gain your freedom. What do I mean by that? Don't raise your hand, but... How many of us remember the horror show that was the dating scene growing up? Man, even if it's the best cultural moment, you still had to curate how you looked. Men, you had to find matching socks for that first date, didn't you? You at least had to you know, do a little Bianca or something. You had to do something to present yourself. You could not have a bad day on a first date, or you might not get the second date. And so it is all about how you present yourself. You cannot be fully free to show who you are. I'm not talking about wicked, evil things. I'm just saying you bring your A game when you're dating. But in marriage, I mean, how many of us know, if you've been married for more than a few years, how many of us know the gift of knowing that this person knows you and has seen you at your worst and they're not going anywhere? There's a freedom to say, I don't have to pretend that things are all okay when they're not. Yes, I will work on me. Yes, my rough edges need to be whittled off. Yes, I've got things to do and grow. But by the grace of God, in a deep, committed relationship, I have the freedom to be me and not afraid that you'll run away from me. See, many of us never get to this point, and so in the church, we all come looking a certain way because if we show up less than our best, we've been conditioned to show up only with sort of our Instagram look our curated feed, so that others will see us a certain way and have this continued superficial, stereotypical relationship. But what God is calling us into is not to be superficial, but to be a family. And a family sees you at your worst, but says we're not going anywhere. So I want to share with you very briefly for just a couple minutes here, what does it mean to be a healthy family. By the way, if you are looking to start your family, this is going to be true. This is the kind of family I would invite you to curate and begin to develop. If you already have a family, parents, if you don't already have a culture built that you say this is intentionally what we want in our family, I'd encourage you to adopt these four things. And if you are a member of a church somewhere else, I would tell you, make sure these four things are the the, the atmosphere, the culture of the church that you belong to. And if you're a part of this church, I'm going to ask you, help us curate this as our culture because these are the four things that healthy families and church families have. A, B, C, D. The A stands for, and this is going to be a hard one, but it's accountability. Everyone say accountability. Now, many of you feel like you just said a bad word, don't you? You feel like that's a, that's a profane word, Accountability. For many of us in our culture, accountability has become a bad word because no one wants to be held account. But here's the good news. Accountability is not a bad word. It's simply someone helping you do what you've said you want to do. Let's go back to an example from a couple weeks ago. 
Where are my workout buddies and gals? Anyone in here go to the gym? Let's just see some hands. All right, let's do it this way. How many of you think you should go to the gym? Let's just do that instead. Okay, there we go. That's me too. All right? We know that you will have higher success rate if you have an accountability partner. You may call it a trainer. It may be a friend. It may be someone who rolls in with you. Why will you succeed more in working out? Because there's someone there who will miss you if you're not there. It's someone who will say, you've said this is who you want to be, and I will encourage you to that end. I'll call you out lovingly, but I'll call you out because you've said you want to be a certain way. You say, well, Diggs, I've never told anyone I want to be a certain way. Um, With respect, yes, you did. When you entered the waters of baptism, you told the rest of the world you wanted to be like Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty high bar, and I need help. Does anyone else in here need just a little help to be like God? Accountability is a gift from God that we now give to one another to say, I love you too much to leave you where you are. You are made for more. You are better than this. Let's do this together. In fact, this is a biblical practice. Paul himself says that he had to rebuke Peter, one of the other apostles, for bad behavior. Now, I'm not encouraging you to beat people up or to rebuke them. I'm simply saying part of being a part of a good family is that you have accountability. And we know what it looks like when you have a bad family without accountability. Parents who say, I just want to love my kids. I don't want to call them to account. Those are the parents with respect. Those are the parents who are loving their kids into an addiction or a jail cell. Accountability is vital for us to become who God has called us to be. The B, the B is belonging. Everyone say belonging. Now this one's the one I love. Anyone else like belonging? To have your space and to have your purpose. Belonging is to have your space and to have your purpose. Belonging is to say that I belong here. There's something here for me. There's a space. There's a place. There's a spot shaped just like me. Did you know, according to 1 Corinthians 12, that if you are in a local church, you are there because God puts you there because you have a specific purpose to fulfill there. According to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, we are a part of a body or a family. We each have a part or a role to play. And if you're not here, if you're not a part of the local body, or if you're not using your gift in the local church family, there's something not being done that God wants to be done. You have a place. You belong. Our kids, we've been talking a lot about this with our kids, and, and our kids, we treat them differently because they have unique places to belong in our family. So, Stephen, for the past three weeks, my son Stephen, I've been building uh, a floating loft bed in his bedroom. Now, I'm not a real handy guy. This has been a labor of love. And, and every night, so, so one side's like mounted into the wall. The other end is suspended by two change, chains from the ceiling. And so every night I say a little prayer that I won't hear a crash in the night. It's, it's, you're, you're perfectly safe, I promise. It's great. <clears throat> and then, <laughs> you are. And then my daughter, on the other hand, She's got a room that is all about girly stuff. It looks like a stuffed animal factory exploded in her room. So Stephen's room is ultimate gamer room. Emma's is Build-A-Bear on steroids room. Because they are both different people with different personalities, we set the space based on how they belong. They have a place. My question to you, friends, do you have a place in the body of Christ? Are you in a small group? where people know you and they'll miss you if you're not there. 
I love this story that C.S. Lewis talks about. He had two friends. It's such a powerful story. C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, he had two friends. And one of his friends died. And C.S. Lewis, after that one friend died, thought, oh, this will be great. I now have my other friend all to myself. But he began to notice something that he had never witnessed before or paid attention to. He noticed there were certain traits about his living friend, certain jokes or certain things that got him excited that Lewis could not pull out of him, but the one who had died was the only one who could pull certain things out of his living friend. So there were jokes that only this guy could tell that would make him laugh. There were certain comments that only this deceased friend could have said that would help him process it more deeply. In other words, Lewis said, my experience of my living friend was less because my friend who had died was no longer there to bring out the best in him in certain ways. In other words, there are people in this church that you will only know at a certain level if someone else in this church brings it out of them. Are you in a community? Do you have a small group? Are you in a Sunday morning Bible class where you can know people and be known by people? And the third thing, accountability, belonging. The C is for care. Everybody say care. 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 Real fast, care. Care is showing up when people need you. Care is showing up when people need you. doesn't mean someone has just died. It simply could mean someone needs to be reminded of the truth of God's word in their life. Be reminded that what they have done does not define who they get to be now. Care can be all sorts of things. Over the past three years, we have had so many deaths because of COVID and other related illnesses. And the comment I keep hearing from so many of you who have lost family members is you'll tell me, you'll say, Diggs, the only reason that I am able to make it one day at a time is because there are people in this church who have continued to show up when I need help. And they'll call me at moments when I don't expect it or when I'm not reaching out, but those are the moments I needed it the most. They just happen to know that I needed help. And I just want to tell them, say, yes, they're providing care, but it's the Holy Spirit who's calling them in those moments, who's prompting them to respond. I, I've told you before that my best prayer time is often between 2 and 3 a.m. in the morning. I'll wake up and someone's name will be on my mind. And I don't know if that's from the Holy Spirit or not, so I just, I default to pray. And I'll send a little text, hey, I'm just thinking about you. So if you ever get a 2 a.m. text, it's just because I woke up, had you on my mind, I want to pray for you. But prayer or caring is simply saying, I will show up when you need help. So third thing, who are you caring for? Who are the people that you say, I'm here, I will be there for them no matter what? Do you have people like that? And do you have people who know you well enough to do that for you? Are you a part of a local church? Accountability, belonging, care, and finally the D is discipleship. Every, every healthy family is intentionally discipling one another. We know this for the biological families, or we know this about just like our typical families, not the church family, right? That every family is discipling someone in the family, raising them up. Even if you don't mean to, you're doing it. Um, So parents, you are discipling or raising your children in a particular way. You disciple them on the way that they behave when there's conflict, based on how you relate to your spouse or to other people. You're discipling your children in the way that they should handle their finances based on how they see you handle your finances. You're discipling your children on the way that they will interact in different scenarios on how you interact in certain scenarios. In other words, we are all discipling someone. Healthy churches and healthy families know this and intentionally disciple one another. In fact, there's another word we get from this. It's the word discipline. It's this idea that says we want to grow and it takes work, it takes effort. 
Discipleship is helping people live like Jesus. And in the church, we say we will live like Jesus. I want to tell you, I'm so glad to be a part of a church that takes this seriously. In fact, you need to know, this morning, this morning, I want to show you two pictures. First one is this one. This morning during the first hour, these are just a few of the kids, but we had Bibles and bagels this morning for all the little biddies who are going from preschool into elementary. There are a bunch more. These are just some that we were able to get a picture of. Because we take seriously in the church that we want to help raise up the next generation to disciple them. And my question is, who are you discipling in the church? Who in this family are you saying, I'm here for this person or this group of people? I'm going to be there to show them what it looks like to live like Jesus so they can live like Jesus. So we had these kids. And then actually, let me show you one more picture. It's a little earlier in the slide deck. But this morning in our youth ministry, we had 75 students gathered to learn and worship about Jesus. By the way, that's the most we've had in a number of years. What I want you to know is we're growing as a church. And we have young people who are coming and hearing the gospel, who are learning what it means. And there are so many of you committed to our next generation ministries that you're volunteering and serving. But you don't have to serve in kids' ministry to disciple someone. Who around you in this room this morning have you begun to say, I'm going to invest in their discipleship? Again, are you in a group or a class where this is taking place? See, being a part of the body of Christ, being a part of the family, means it's not a spectator sport, but I hope you see that it is, I'm going to give and receive accountability. I'm going to give and receive belonging. I'm going to give and receive care. And I'm going to give and receive discipleship because this is what the family of God looks like. There's one final little detail I want you to see from the passage as we kind of close things out this morning. And this is one very powerful word we looked at, but I want us to see one last time. It says this, see what great, say this word real loud with me, love. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. In other words, the love of the Father is what gave us the right to be children. Or we might put it this way. Love built this house. Love built this family. Love came from heaven and love died for us. And love rose for us. And that na- the name of love is Jesus. The reason you and I get to be a part of the family is because love built this family. And Jesus Christ gave up. God himself gave up his freedom so you and I could be a part of the family. Have you ever considered that for God to have a relationship with you and me, God had to give up some of his freedom? Jesus Christ, who was infinite who could be all places at all times, limited himself. He gave up freedom so he could be in one place at one time in the form of a human. This God, Jesus Christ, who had the praise of angels in heaven, gave up that so he could receive the scorn of men and the hatred of evildoers. This God who would live forever gave up life itself and died on a cross for you and for me. Paul says that he emptied himself. He gave up freedom so that you and I may be free and be part of his family. We're here because love built this family. And we're all invited in. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you a part of the family of God? Not just universal, but local. And if this is not the right place, we'll help you find the right place. But what cannot be is for you simply to go for the rest of your life at superficial levels of relationships, missing out on what God has called you to. Yes, it will be hard. And yes, there will be moments of pain. But the gift of God is worth the discomfort 
and the benefits that you will receive, oh, immeasurable. Are you a part of the family of God? I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close in song and prayer. We're going to say a prayer, and then we'll sing one final song. If you will, bow your heads, close your eyes. I don't want to embarrass anyone this morning, but I do want to ask you two questions. Question number one, have you given your life to Jesus Christ, been born again into the universal family of God? Are you a Christian today? If you have not given your life to Jesus in baptism, our invitation and really the invitation of our Father is that you would be welcome into the family. Next question. If you have given your life to Jesus and are a part of his family, have you said yes to being a part of a local church family, saying, I'm all in? Yes, the garbage. Yes, the frustration. Yes, the awkward conversations. But God's family knows no orphans. God's family knows those who are committed to the local church. Father, we thank you that you are committed to your church family. So much so that you gave up everything for us so that we could have everything to be with you. Lord, for those in this room who have yet to enter your global family, I pray that today they would take that next step. Lord, that they would meet us in the lobby, that they would say, yes, let's do this, that they would come into relationship with Jesus in baptism. And Father, for those in this room who are Christ followers, but they have held the church at arm's length, maybe because they were hurt in the past, or because of the commitment I pray today they would be courageous enough to take that next step deeper into relationship so that they can experience what you died to give them, and that is a family. We pray this now. In the name of our big brother and Savior, Jesus, and all those who agreed said, Amen.